Welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that brings you the week's biggest news in science. I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan. I'm our features editor. And I'm Graham Lawton, staff writer, stepping off the substitutes bench to co-host. <laughs> Joining us this week is New Scientist reporter Adam Vaughan and science writer Caroline Williams. Hello. 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 This week on the show, we're talking about what it means to distribute COVID-19 vaccines equitably around the world, learning about exciting new evidence that the first ever flowers were much older than we thought, and exploring whether a truly sustainable fuel source could soon be within reach. And we've also got a story about a new kind of robot that's a real softie. <laughs> but before we dive in, I wanted to remind everyone about our other great new podcast, Escape Pod. It's full of weird and wonderful things to distract and inspire you, and it is 100% pandemic-free programming. So far, we've explored the hidden wonders of lichen, the physics of gymnastics, and even listened to some singing gorillas. New Scientist Escape Pod is available now at all the usual podcast outlets. And one other thing to remind our listeners about is that it's not too late for you to get in on our special offer, New Scientist for half price for 12 weeks. Yeah, 12 weeks for half price. That is a really great deal. You need to go to newscientist.com backslash pod 12 to find out more and subscribe you get all the benefits of premium content of the magazine plus access to the treasures of the archive that's newscientist.com backslash pod 12 but first just over a year ago now on the 30th of january 2020 the world health organization declared the coronavirus outbreak a public health emergency of international concern this is the organization's way of raising the global alarm bell about what would shortly thereafter be deemed a full-on pandemic since then, we have watched as death tolls rose and fell, then rose again. We've lived in and out of lockdowns, gone months without seeing friends and family, and endured many other new and unsettling experiences. And all of this is really starting to wear people out. Caroline, you looked at the toll all of this has taken, whether it's leading to a kind of pandemic burnout. So what is burnout exactly? One thing that is important to say at the beginning is that burnout is not a mental illness. It's not something that you get diagnosed with. So it's not depression by another name. But we do know that people with mental health problems are more vulnerable to burnout and burnout makes you more vulnerable to things like depression. So they are related, but it's not necessarily a mental health issue. It's more, if you like, a sort of understandable reaction to a very difficult situation. And there are three main signs that you might have reached burnout. Um, one is exhaustion, which is not just being tired from a lack of sleep. It's like if you've, even if you've had a good night's sleep, you just feel exhausted. Second is a feeling of being emotionally detached and cynical, like nothing really matters anymore. And third, which is related to that, it's an uneasy feeling that you're not accomplishing anything. You know, No matter what you do, it doesn't matter anyway. So you just kind of give up. Much of the research on burnout has actually been done in the context of work, right? But everything you've just described probably sounds really familiar um, and, and like it can apply to many aspects of life, certainly right now. Yeah, so until now, nearly all the research has been done in relation to work. But I think the researchers I spoke to said that it's much more widespread problem now. And I guess part of the problem is so many people are working at home. Work is not separate from life anymore. In fact, work is sort of competing with life and life's competing with work. And these lines have got more and more blurred than ever, which is, um, you know, a great recipe for burnout. So what are the biggest risk factors for burnout? So one of the biggest ones is your perception of how much control you have over your situation. So 
if you feel like the stresses you're dealing with are being imposed upon you from above or if they're unfair but you don't have the power to fight back about them you can't do anything about them then you're more likely to become burned out there's a psychological um, phenomenon called learned helplessness which is they use it in in studies as a model for depression because it's basically the feeling that you can't do anything about your situation so you might as well just give up and fall over so that's a major risk factor for burnout So does that mean in terms of things like lockdown or other um, measures that we have to take to um, contain the spread of the virus, it actually can make a really big difference whether you feel they're kind of imposed by edict from on high or it's something that we're all facing together, we're all in this together? Yeah, so there's been studies done on this before um, in in regards to the SARS uh, outbreak and Ebola. And studies have found that people did much better, they were much more resilient when they felt that they were choosing to uh, quarantine themselves, to keep themselves uh, locked away, than when it was being forced upon them. So obviously quarantine is different to lockdown, but it's kind of related. You know, if you feel as if this is being forced upon you against your will, that makes a big difference. And also the idea that we're all in this together and, you know, that everyone, this is for the greater good. And that matters a lot, especially in terms of government imposing restrictions on people because when things happen like governments are perceived to have done something wrong we had the Dominic Dominic Cummings episode in the UK you know that erodes the trust and you know brings up a sense of unfairness and there's another study that showed that did have a real impact on how people felt about the restrictions and how likely they were to follow them. So Caroline you say a lot of the research is done in the context of work but an awful lot of people are not working at the moment maybe they're furloughed or they've lost their jobs is that is burnout a risk for those people too Yeah well there's bur- burnout has a kind of evil twin if you like that's just kind of started emerging in the last decade or so in the work literature and it's called bore out and it's basically the idea that when you're out of control in terms of not having enough to do, or at least not having enough to do that feels meaningful for you, and you don't want to do it, you know, you might have a million jobs to do, but they're all boring and pointless as far as it feels. You know, someone's lost their job, and all they've got to do is keep the house tidy and do the washing. Suddenly, it's a bit depressing. So yeah, bore out can be just as stressful because it, it causes the same sort of feelings of lack of control and learned helplessness. And so people that are socially isolated may have lost their job, you know, they can be suffering as much um, and as badly with something that's like burnout, but too little to do rather than too much. So Caroline, in in both of these situations, whether it's to do with the blurred lines between work and home life, or having sort of too much time on your hands or too many um, sort of tiresome tasks to take on, what can we do to sort of avoid these feelings of burnout and and protect ourselves? Well, it's kind of tricky because, you know, we are in a situation where we can't do a lot of the things that we would normally do. You can't go and see a friend. You can't go out. You know, there's, there's there are restrictions. But the important thing is to take control of the things that you can. So if that's a case of, you know, meeting a friend for a walk that you can do. So meaningful social connections are really, really important. We are a social species. And even though when you're burnt out or bored out, you might not feel like necessarily having yet another Zoom call or a phone call or whatever. One of the researchers I spoke to said it's really, really important to force yourself to have some kind of social connection because that's well known to be a buffer against burnout and and mental health issues. Um, And so, yeah, do what you can within the confines of where we are. So, um, you know, the usual suspects go out for a walk, um, spend time in nature, you know, turn up some music and dance around your kitchen, you know, all that, all those kinds of things can 
be the way to take back control in a really difficult situation. And all, and, and in terms of work, it's very, very important to take control in terms of knowing when to say no, knowing when to stop, turn your computer off and go and do the life part rather than just the work bit. Now we have a story for our life form of the week slot that we probably should have saved for Valentine's Day, but I dare say it would have wilted by then. Is that about flowers by any chance? It is. Very (laughs) old flowers, which actually withered and died about 250 million years ago. Oh, how romantic. Well, it is actually quite romantic if you're into ancient life and evolution, as you know I am, because these are the oldest flowers ever, and they may help to solve what Charles Darwin himself called an abominable mystery. So up till now, paleontologists thought that flowering plants, which are technically called angiosperms, were a pretty late arrival on the scene. You know, they evolved maybe around 135 million years ago. And that's the early Cretaceous period when the world was full of dinosaurs. Uh, But this new discovery has pushed that back way, way back to 250 million years ago. So flowers seem to have been on Earth since the beginning of the Triassic period, which is actually before dinosaurs evolved. So I bet they were pretty small and weedy, not that impressive. Yeah, that's a decent bet. Actually, you know, we don't know because this claim, which is going to stir up some controversy and we'll get onto that, is not based on fossil flowers, but on a sort of tree, um, a family tree to be precise. (laughs) Okay. So the researchers analysed a lot of fossil flowers, 15,000 of them from about 200 different families. And they also looked at the diversity of living angiosperms. And that's a big job too, because they're the most diverse group of land plants. And they used a computational technique to build a comprehensive family tree of all known living and extinct plants. And based on what we know about how fast lineages diverge, that turned out to have its root way before the fossil flowers. You know, that's where we get the 250 million years ago figure. And that's interesting, actually, because it's much more in keeping with estimates based on DNA, these molecular clocks. And so what's the connection to Darwin? Well, flowering plants appeared quite abruptly in the fossil record and are instantly quite complex and diverse, which was a challenge really to Darwin's view of gradual, incremental evolution from simpler ancestral forms. You know, he called it this abominable mystery. It was one of the biggest unknowns in his theory at the time. So the obvious answer really is that the fossil record is quite incomplete and that early angiosperms existed but didn't fossilise. Now, this study adds weight to that idea. The early angiosperms, as you say, probably were small and weedy and also quite rare. And they lived on land, which is known for not being good for fossilization. So they just didn't fossilize. Okay, but you promised controversy. Why are people upset about all of this? Yeah, I did. And uh, the evolution of flowers is always seen as one of those kind of big bang moments in evolution when something new came along and changed the rules of the game. So for example, it spurred the diversification of bees and also ants and termites. And now these social insects are considered one of evolution's great transitions when a new level of biological complexity first appeared. Now, the fact that this coincided with the first fossil flowers was nice and neat. But if flowering plants go way, way back, then maybe we just have a new abominable mystery on our hands. Now we have a short break to tell you about an upcoming online event. As part of our Big Thinker series, astrophysicist Avi Loeb will be talking about the search for alien life on Thursday, the 11th of February. You can buy a single ticket for this literally out-of-this-world event or a pass 
that gets you to all 10 events in the Big Thinkers series this year, for which experts will be talking about everything from the origins of life to the end of ageing. For more details, go to newscientist.com events. Now let's move on to that small problem of getting the entire world vaccinated against COVID-19. We've written in the past about the many logistical hurdles involved in making, testing, mass producing, and then distributing the vaccines across the globe. But Adam, this week you explore why it's so very critical that we do so equitably, that it's not just the rich countries that get all of the jabs. Yeah, that's right. And this is an issue that affects all of us. It's not just people in low-income countries. The, the, the main thing, main international effort is uh, something called COVAX, which is led by the World Health Organization, amongst others. Um, this was established last year, relatively early in the pandemic. And the, uh, the goal is to, that, to make sure that as vaccines become available, they're distributed to low-income countries that basically can't afford to buy their own. And the idea is in the long run to immunise 20% of the population of those countries through that programme. So how's it going so far? Well, it's not really started, <laughs> so that's part of the problem. Uh, I mean, the you know, don't get me wrong, the pro- COVAX exists and they've raised a lot, quite a lot of money. Um, in terms of numbers, you know, so obviously in the UK, we've just reached the milestone of 10 million people out of a population of getting on for 70 million that being vaccinated in somewhere such as Guinea, uh, the West African nation, uh, they've got about 13 million people and there 25 people have had the dose. Sorry, did you say 25 people? Yeah, it's not it's, uh, it's not 25 million, it's just 25. And one of those is apparently the president. So it's a really, I think, you know, just that country, just looking at that country, it just highlights the fact that low-income countries are at the back of the queue, right? So one analysis found that low-income countries may not get most of their population immunised until 2024. And that's two years later than people in high-income countries, such as the UK. Wow. So so what's being done about it? Well, uh, COVAX um, has some big goals. The idea is to get to 2 billion doses by the end of this year to low-income countries. And the first, it recently said, are due to come due to be delivered later in February. Um, so that's obviously a big should. We'll have to wait and see. That, that sounds like a good start, at least. Yeah, um, it, cle- it's, it clearly is. Um, you know, it, it's good that they, they have managed to get going so quickly when you consider the speed of things. The, the problem is that those countries are going to, and COVAX, likely everyone I spoke to for the story said, you know, they're going to suffer the same supply issues that we're seeing in the UK, EU and elsewhere. And, and also... Yeah, if that does come to pass, it just comes to the simple thing of more people dying than, you know, could have been prevented. You could have, could have avoided a lot of those deaths. That's the, that's the simple consequence of it. Yeah. And, and in addition to the that grim reality of people dying who, who should have had access to vaccines, not distributing doses equitably around the world also means that it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to actually get the outbreak, this global outbreak under control. Yeah, I mean, I sort of, I kind of hate sometimes having to sort of bring things back to, you know, high income countries and where, you know, new scientists, listeners might be hearing this. But, you know, it, it, the, the point is, it does matter for everyone if we're bad at rolling out vaccines in low income countries for two, two main reasons, really. One, one is that it will be a drag on economic growth globally because those countries, it means they're going to likely have to have more local restrictions and so they'll have less economic growth, less ability to buy and sell stuff and that other big thing is which you know graham and others have been reporting on is the 
danger of more mutations and more variants cropping up. You know, if we've got more of it circulating in human hosts, then that's more transmission and more chance for uh, mutations to emerge that might undermine vaccines everywhere. Are there any efforts underway that you know of that to devise a, a global vaccination strategy? Something like, you know, when countries that have more doses reach a certain level of protection of their most vulnerable population members, that they then contribute to the global supply? Or is it too early still to do that because we don't yet know which vaccines will stop transmission and which just stop individuals from getting sick? Uh, so, I mean, the short answer to your question, Tiff, is no. I mean, there's, uh, there isn't really any sort of coordinated global plan. There are some regional ones. So beyond COVAX, you know, the African Union, for example, is clubbing together to um, you know, buy vaccines. But in terms of any sort of genuine global coordination, that it's not happening. Some groups, uh, you know, there are NGOs and academics um, who are pushing for that kind of thing. And some individual countries are, are doing stuff because they think it's sort of either morally right or in their self-interest. You know, now New Zealand has offered to vaccinate other countries in the Pacific region, for example. But yeah, the answer, the, the short answer is no. But hopefully, maybe as you know, we learn more about the vaccines down the line, we might see some more sort of global strategies start to come together. That's our sci-fi alert, which means we've got something in the mag that's already been in science fiction. Graham, is this by any chance the robot story you mentioned in the intro? It is. Uh, I think we introduced it as a softy, and that is what it is. It's a soft robot with translucent skin that can sense human touch and tell whether it's being prodded, patted or hugged. And now this apparently could be quite a big breakthrough in human-robot interactions. So forgive my not following the moment-by-moment development in robots, but Aren't there already touch-sensitive robots? Yeah, there are, but they require quite complicated and expensive hardware. Now, this one just uses a camera. To sense touch? Yeah. uh, The skin of the robot is made of nylon, and it's stretched really tightly over the frame. So different types of touch produce characteristic deformations of the skin. So the researchers just simply fitted the robot with a cheap USB camera under its skin to observe what kind of deformations were happening. And this offers uh, maybe a new way to control robots. I mean, you could program it so a pat makes it turn around, a prod makes it leave the room, and a hug turns it on or off again. You can imagine how this might be useful for care home robots and that kind of thing. And it also means that the robot can be soft and flexible as it doesn't need to have rigid touch sensors all over its surface. And so what's the sci-fi connection here? Well, listen, I'm not a big sci-fi fan, so I really had to look this one up. And I will admit, it's a bit tenuous, but we don't really want to upstage Rowan, so we'll go with it. (laughs) Uh, So I discovered that there is a novel by uh, Roger Zelazny called This Immortal, which actually shared the 1966 Hugo Award with a much more famous novel, which is Dune by Frank Herbert. Anyway, the less famous novel features a wrestling robot called Rolam, which has this range of touch sensors to make it a better sparring partner for humans. Ah, so it's kind of like a an animate punch bag. So we're getting a bit closer to, you know, an option to have all the aggression, none of the blood. Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely try and wrestle a robot to the ground at some point, you know, just to stop myself from burning out. <laughs> now, we know that finding sustainable sources of fuel will be critical to helping us slow climate change. In the past, there's been a lot of hype around hydrogen. It's the lightest element on Earth, it's the most abundant element on Earth, and it burns. 
and I realize I'm oversimplifying here, but the, the hope around hydrogen is basically that we take sort of all this plentiful water around us, somehow squeeze the hydrogen out, just leave a little oxygen left over, and then, you know, use it to fuel our cars and buses. Yeah, something like that. And repeatedly, there's been great excitement about this fuel revolution finally arriving, only for it not to finally arrive. But Adam, you've been looking into this for the magazine this week, and it seems that this time, this time, there really is cause for hope. Yeah, well, I'll forgive you both for a little bit of a sense of deja vu. I, I, I think New Scientist has covered some of the previous uh, hype cycles. We've been, we've been here before, you know, the 1970s was the most obvious one when there was an oil crisis. And then again, there was a little bit of a round of excitement in the early noughties, oil companies looking at it. And, the you know, the then US President George W. Bush said he thought that hydrogen was going to make a fundamental difference for the future of our children. Yeah, those children are now kind of nearly grown up and that hydrogen future hasn't really materialised. So what yeah, went wrong? Fun, yeah, funny enough, we're not both driving around in hydrogen cars, are we, Graham? Um, so, yeah, well, part of the problem is just that fossil fuels, you know, we know they've been cheap for a long time. They're still cheap. And just starting a, a whole sort of hydrogen economy up is expensive. It's more expensive than the status quo. You've got all the producing it, transporting it, storing it, so on. There's also a little bit, probably a little bit about public perception and obviously the infamous explosion of the Hindenburg back in 1937, you know, but that was, you know, thankfully, you know, safety has moved on hugely since then. So that's not really the issue. I mean, today, the question is, how much can hydrogen really help us tackle climate change? Can it really be green? And are we willing to pay to make it green? Yeah, you know, I'm sure we all remember where we were when the Hindenburg went up in flames. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> where do we now get most of our hydrogen from? Well, this is the problem. So, you know, you mentioned about the, I think you both mentioned about the abundance of hydrogen, but the problem is, is on Earth, you don't tend to get it on its own. So right now, ironically enough, we mostly make it about 96% of it from fossil fuels. And even the other 4% comes from um separating it from water which often the electricity to do that is from fossil fuel power stations so you know it's almost all fossil fuels at the moment ultimately in terms of how we make it and that means it's got a big co2 footprint so two of the biggest economies in the world combined the uk and indonesia that's roughly what hydrogen production is today right that doesn't sound like a green answer to me there must be greener ways to make it yeah so that's that that, you know that's the sort of so-called gray hydrogen where it's made from and, and there's basically no point making more of that to, you know, power trains or uh, planes or whatever you want to use to decarbonize. Um, so that's where we come to this like mad kind of color wheel of, of hydrogen. And beyond the gray, there's two other main, there's more, but I'm not going to go through the whole palette. There's two other main colors. And one is one is green, which is what you were talking about, Tiff, which is this idea of using electrolysis um, to separate it out, out from water. And that's clearly the best in terms of CO2, because if you do it with a renewable source, a zero carbon source, um, then it's completely clean. But it's also the most expensive way of producing it by far. The, the second, which is a bit cheaper, but still more expensive than just the standard way of making it from fossil fuels, is called blue hydrogen, which is where you basically still make it from fossil fuels. In, but then you add the step of carbon capture and storage. The problem is that doesn't capture all the carbon. So the question really is about Who's going to pay to to make those two things happen, the blue and the green? Okay, so in principle, you know, with enough will and investment, it can be done, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, the technology is there, you know, green and blue hydrogen. 
exists. Um, there's just not a lot of it, um, you know, and there's like various trials going on. So, so the technology exists, and I, I suppose probably more importantly, the will to make those two things work is there as well, and that and that's because of this much wider context, which I think um, you've written about, Graham, which is you know that the that country an increasing number of countries, uh, major economies are setting net zero carbon targets. So from China to the EU to soon the US as well, um, we're going to have you know, most, of the, most of the major economies in the world basically saying we've got to get to zero by 2050. And the reality is, is without hydrogen, there's certain parts of our economies that are going to be really, really hard to get to zero. Yeah, those hard to decarbonize sectors like shipping and aerospace and stuff. I guess they they're looking at hydrogen. So, so say companies and countries actually do invest in the cleanest hydrogen production technology. I presume that there are still other hurdles to clear before you and me are driving around in our hydrogen powered cars. Yeah, so I mean, I'm pretty skeptical any of us will be driving around in hydrogen cars, to be honest with you. But there, you know, in terms of hydrogen trucks, possibly planes, possibly ships, and heavy industry, um, there are other obstacles beyond just the fact that green and blue hydrogen is expensive Tr- really tricky one is just moving the stuff around you know the molecules are famously very small so you know they'll leak out of pipes and if they can and there's also you know while we're getting to this people might find other solutions so you know a good example is in the uk hydrogen has been mooted as this you know way to get us off gas for heating our homes and other buildings the problem is it's just not there yet really so in the meantime, something else might come along, like, you know, in the, that example, uh, electric heat pumps that might we might all end up fitting those and they just become the status quo and render the need for it moot. So, I mean, what, what is your verdict, really? I mean, is it more than hype this time around? Well, I was super, super sceptical about it when I first started reporting it. And I have to say, I was talked around a bit by the people I spoke to on the field that the genuine is a little something different about this hype cycle. So I came away with the conclusion that Hydrogen will have a role to play in tackling climate change. The only question is just how big that role will be. Yeah, and for sure we're going to carry on covering this story because climate change is the story that is not going to go away for a long time. Anyway, thanks, Adam. That's really interesting. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us, Caroline and Adam. Just before we go, remember it's not too late to sign up for a subscription to New Scientist for 12 weeks for half price. Go to newscientist.com slash pod12 for more info and check out Escape Pod, our new podcast. Yeah, do check out Escape Pod. It's great. And uh, so that means it's all there is left to say is goodbye for now and take care out there. Goodbye. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.